in Luke chapter 18, verse 18, and I'm going to be reading from the NIV this morning. So it's pretty familiar, but a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked him, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Right, good morning, family. This is my third sermon in 18 hours. So I'm praying that I don't give you crumbs, but the Holy Spirit freshly empowers me to serve you well this morning. Um, you know, we, we only ever can serve meaningfully with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so right now is a great opportunity for, to be reminded of that. We're getting in a pretty weighty text, if you paid attention at all while Pete was reading that scripture. It's a pretty well-known passage, probably for three reasons. One, because it talks about money, and every time a church does a sermon series on giving and tithing, this can be often thrown in there. So you may have heard that if you grew up in a church that did a giving series every year. Um, number two, Jesus says some crazy things, alarming things that just jars us. Wait, do you really mean that? Like that, Jesus? Are you sure? Is it different in the Greek? So that kind of sticks out in our minds. And, and thirdly, I think this passage is so well known because it addresses one of the most important questions you could ever ask. What shall you do? How can you inherit eternal life? And this is a really important question, as you guys probably could think or imagine. But it's a question that has a lot of different answers that the world provides. If, if you were to ask a hundred people on the street right now, just go out and say, what can you do to inherit eternal life, or what should you do to be saved? You're going to get probably close to a hundred different answers, and the reality is they can't all be right. They can't all have the right answer, all hundred different answers. So this is a question that you cannot take for granted, and if you grew up in the church, it's a question that you can easily take for granted, and just assume you know because your parents, your mama told you so. And this is something you just can't just assume and inherit by your culture or your upbringing. you got to know this, the answer to this question. 
And there's a lot of things that people debate about in our culture, in our world. You know, there's a flat earth theory kind of getting pretty popular among some people. And you can actually believe in that and you'll probably be okay generally in life. But you can't be wrong about this one. You can be wrong about the, the earth's size or shape, but you can't be wrong about this. This is one of the most important things you could ever ponder, and so we have a great opportunity to really dig in to God's word to answer this important question. What shall you do to inherit the kingdom of God? So hopefully, while I have your time and attention, you can just really lock in, for this is of utmost importance. Now, Jesus is approached by a certain young ruler. Verse 18, a certain young ruler or a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when you hear the word ruler, think religious leader, think probably a ruler of a synagogue. We see that in the book of Acts. And so this person, in, according to the gospel of Mark, was also young. So imagine a young, wealthy, successful guy who has a lot of prominence in society, loved in the community, has a lot of respect. So this man is coming to Jesus, and he's asking a question that is super important, but a question that we probably are, the, the audience is probably like, dude, why are you asking that question? We all know the answer to that question. We're all good Jews. We're ethnically Jewish. We come from the right pedigree. We've gone through the right rituals. We do the right things, and we obey uh, Moses' law. It's simple. Why are you asking such a silly question? And I heard some preacher say he may be asking this question because inside his heart, he's insecure about the answer. He's uncertain about his fates, but we don't know. That's speculation. So Jesus responds to him and responds with a surprising, jarring answer. Because Jesus doesn't even answer him. He says this, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now, how many of you have heard this passage or read this passage passage in the past and were a little thrown off by it because it sounds like Jesus is is denying his deity. Anybody ever thought that? It feels like, wait, why are you saying that, Jesus? Well, remember, whenever you read the Bible, you never read one verse. You read the context around it, and then you also zoom out, and you have to think about the other passages in the Bible. So let's just make this clear. Jesus definitively clarifies his deity many times throughout the Gospels and more. So that just should be taken off the table. So if if Jesus is not denying his deity, what is he doing? Well, if we look at the immediate context, we can figure a lot of things out. Because notice, Jesus doesn't say, don't call me good, does he? He doesn't correct him and say, hey, don't, don't you do that. Only God is good. He doesn't correct him and say, don't call me good. He asks, why do you call me good? Why are you calling me good? Which I take is, is Jesus doing two things at least. He's reminding the audience that, hey, listen, only God is good. And if you're calling me good, do you realize who you're talking to? Do you get who you're talking to? If you've been following my ministry for the past few years, do you see that the kingdom of God is coming everywhere I go and touch? Do you realize that that's not just, I'm just not a prophet? Do you realize who you're talking to? But he doesn't dig into it, but it's just an aside. And he gets to the heart of this man. But Jesus moves on, verse 20. He answers him by saying this, You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. 
Now, we don't have time to get into the details of this or why Jesus does this, but it's interesting to note that out of the Ten Commandments, Jesus only highlights others-oriented commands, commands that are relating with people, not like the Sabbath or his name. Isn't that interesting? Think about that, but not now. Think about it some other time. Write it down. I have some thoughts if you want to talk to me about it. But for the sake of the time, our time, we're going to keep going. But the religious man answers like a good Jew would. He says this, verse 21, all these I've kept since I was a boy, he said, which honestly cannot be true. It is not possible. Are you saying, young man, that you've never dishonored your parents in word or thought? And remember, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount elevates that it's not merely outward conformity to the law, but it's where your heart is. So you can say, well, I've never committed adultery. I've never cheated on my wife, but maybe you've cheated every day in your heart with looking with lust upon a young woman or looking at pornography or other different things. Jesus elevates the reality of the law, but I digress. So the man is either lying straight out of his teeth that he's always obeyed God's law since he was young, or perhaps he is so self-deceived that he really believes that. He really believes that he's obeyed God and all of these since he's born. And if you've ever tried to debate someone who thinks they're right about something, you know that that is a oftentimes a losing battle, right? If someone is convinced about their own goodness about a situation, maybe you see a situation very differently, it is very hard to change their mind. In, in fact, the more you try to change their mind, the more they dig their heels in. And the more they know that they're right. So Jesus doesn't go point by point and say, hey, actually, you know, because I'm God, uh, when you were 12, you did this, and no one knows, right? He doesn't do that. He goes straight for the heart. And I want you to know something. If you look at Mark chapter 12, the other parallel passage of this, it says, and Jesus loved him. And so what follows is not Jesus doing gotcha journalism. Gotcha, actually, boom, you don't know anything, or boom, you're actually a sinner. No, no, no. Because Jesus loves him, he actually exposes him. And this is a really important thing for us to get in our minds in our understanding of what Jesus' character is like. One of the most loving things Jesus can do is expose us so that he can heal us and love us and transform us. And one of the most damning things he could do is just let us have our sin and be blind in it. And so Jesus, in his compassion and love for this young ruler, actually exposes his very heart gets through all the arguments and goes straight for the heart. And he says this, verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus knows this man. What's interesting is that Jesus is very unique in his calls to this man. If you read throughout the Gospels, Jesus never calls another person explicitly to do the same thing, to sell everything they have and give to the poor. Why is he doing it here? Well, consider this. Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at the well, and he says nothing to her about giving to the poor or the rich or, or, or her riches. What does he talk to the woman at the well about? Well, her many husbands and the man she's living with right now who's not a husband. So Jesus knows that this woman's one thing, the one thing keeping her from the kingdom is her unhealthy, toxic dependence on these men and not trusting God for her needs and going to these men. And so instead of talking to her about finances, which is not her root issue, he goes and talks about that because he knows her heart. 
And, but but for, for this young rich ruler, he knows that his heart, his issue, his idol is self and possessions and wealth. And remember, church, whenever we talk about the rich and the wealthy in the Bible, don't just think about dollars or shekels as if the rich just sit there and bathe themselves in money and they're like, I love cash, right? No, no, no. What does cash bring? It brings status. It brings pleasures. It brings respect. It brings trips. It brings places you live and respect. All the kind of trappings that come with wealth. So make sure you keep that in mind and not simply dollars because some of us may get ourselves off the hook and say, well, I don't really care about money. Well, do you care about where you live? Do you care about what you wear? Do you care about your status? Do you care about what you can drink or what you can eat and where you go and play? Probably. So remember all the stuff that comes with wealth. So Jesus goes straight for his heart because he knows that this is the one thing. And I just want to repeat that, that one thing. Everybody has that one thing. You know that one thing that just keeps you, that constantly binds you. You know that person that you've shared the gospel with and they, they're intrigued, they're even drawn to the, the promises and the goodness of Jesus, but there's that one thing that just they can't let go. Maybe it's a relationship, a toxic relationship. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's a career. Maybe it's trauma or something terrible that has done to them or unforgiveness, but there's that one thing that if Jesus could have that one thing, he gets everything else for free. Imagine a dam, and this one thing is holding everything back, and if Jesus could just have that one thing, it's just a flood, and everything else comes for free. If you gave that one thing to Jesus, you're like, everything else is yours. If you have this, you can have everything else. And everybody has that one thing. We have a lot of things, but there's often, in my, in my experience, one thing that keeps people. Maybe it's security. Maybe it's your health. Who knows what it is? But for this young man, it's wealth. Now, this is worth considering further because Jesus does address his wealth. So I'm not going to just say, hey, that's his thing, and let's talk about your thing. Let's talk about wealth because Jesus talks about wealth here. So I want to be faithful to this passage. And Jesus talks about wealth a lot for good reason. And this is interesting because in 16 years of ministry for me, I've said this before, I have never counseled and met someone who's confessed to me that they struggle with wealth and greed. I've never I've never been in an accountability group or some sort of discipleship group where someone says, hey guys, can you pray for me? I struggle with wealth. I struggle with greed. Never. So apparently I'm just in the wrong groups because no one's ever greedy, apparently. And yet our culture loves possessions and money and esteems that. And so either this is one area that the church just by God's grace just never struggles with or we're blind because money has a blinding effect. Wealth has a blinding effect on us. Society can blind us to what's really in our hearts. I think this passage itself is a very powerful litmus test for what's in our hearts. I found a preacher really helpful here. It's on the screen if you want to read along. It is true that Jesus was speaking most specifically to the ruler himself and not to anyone else. Oh, not on the screen. Just listen carefully then. But why is it that we are so quick to put all kinds of qualifiers on this verse and to insist that Jesus does not command all Christians everywhere to sell all their possessions. Why do we secretly hope that Jesus won't tell us to sell what we we have and give it to the poor, but will tell us to do something else instead? Very likely it is because we would be unable to pass the same simple test. If we had to sell everything we had to inherit eternal life, 
would we be able to do it? If not, then we are not in the same, are we not in the same spiritual trouble the ruler was in? See, growing up, I would hear this passage preached and everyone's like, <gasps> and like nervous. And then the pastor's like, well, it's only for him. And we're like, oh, good. Yeah, great. Let me get on Amazon real quick and buy something, right? I've heard preachers say, Jesus is not calling you to sell all your possessions and give to the poor, but just calling to see if you're willing. And we're all like, good, we're all willing. Wait, are we? But are we? Why do we assume we're willing? We get ourselves off the hook. Yeah, well, yeah, good, good. Well, of course I'm willing. Why do you think that you're willing? Well, you only know if you're willing if you look at your lifestyle right now. That's the only way you can know how you handle the big things, if how do you handle the little things every day. Do you live your life in a way sacrificially, generously, in a way where it disrupts your lifestyle that you'd prefer? Did you hear the qualifiers of how I just said that? Do you live your life in a generous way where it disrupts to the point where it sacrificially disrupts the life that you would prefer to live? Not a, a little dabble, do you? A little, I'll give you a little money on the top because it wouldn't matter anyway, but this actually is going to affect the things that I would like to do or prefer to do, prefer to live, prefer to wear, prefer to eat, to drink, to go to. See, if you don't have that kind of lifestyle characteristically where you're laying down and not doing and, and, and denying yourself, then this very question is for you that Jesus raised. This very command is for you. It's for me. These little tests, these little questions like, where does your mind go if you get an influx of cash? So let's say if you get money from the IRS, there's another stimulus package maybe coming, and you hear that you're going to get, let's say, 1000 What does your mind immediately go to? Ooh, maybe I can finally get that thing. Or maybe I can go on a golf trip. No? Uh, or maybe I can, no one thinks that way except me, I guess. All right? Or maybe I can do blank. See, these are little, little hints, little flags to say that there's something off on our heart that needs to be recalibrated. Because when we think about an increase of money, we should be excited because now we can finally give more to others. We can be more generous. We can bless more people who are need and needy. I mean, a simple question to ask is what percentage of your income do you give to the church and to others? And if your income increases, if your mindset is now what can I increase in my life instead of what can I increase for others, then something is off. I think this passage is so important for us to honestly assess and be skeptical about our relationship with money because it's so worshipped in our culture. And whatever is valued in your culture is going to take a lot of work, a lot of intentional work to disentangle your heart from. The deck is stacked towards materialism, consumerism in our culture. It's everywhere. It's what we breathe in. And so you have to put a lot of work to make sure you are disconnected and broken, break those ties of the world's thinking. And a lot of Christians, they just assume they're okay. And if you're just assuming and you didn't do the hard work, I guarantee you, you're entangled in the way the world thinks about money and possessions. It's not something that just comes free. Oh, I'm just, I'm just, that's just not a struggle for me. You only say that if you really struggled to fight. But notice, very importantly, Jesus doesn't call him to sell all he has to give to the poor as, as an end to itself. That's not the end goal, giving to the poor. What does he say? Then come and follow me. 
That's the goal. That's the one thing keeping him from being able to follow Jesus. So Jesus isn't saying like, you know, everyone, if, if you could just give everything to the poor, then everything will be happy. No, it, that's the thing that he needs to let go so that he can hold on to Jesus. He needs to let go of the earthly treasure so he can hold on to the greatest treasure. This is the necessary prerequisite to following Jesus for this rich ruler, and it's the necessary prerequisite for all of us to be able to give Jesus our one thing to follow him. And I believe that there are so many Christians who are actually not Christians, they're so-called Christians, who grew up in church, and they started from a foundation because maybe their flesh, or maybe the preachers, or maybe their parents gave them the lie that they could follow Jesus and not give, them, give him everything. And from that faulty foundation, they've tried to grow and there is a reason why they're so joyless. There's a reason why they have little passion for Christ and brokenness for the lost. There's a reason why they're, they're so powerless against their sin. Because they have this one thing that they still haven't given to Jesus. And so they're, they're like, you know, Jesus, you, just, you can't have this one thing, but you can have everything else. Shouldn't that be enough? No. If he doesn't have that one thing, he doesn't have everything. And you can dress it up with all this religious stuff. You can give tithes even. You can do all this good stuff. Serve in church. Even serve in the nursery. I mean, that's super spiritual. Like, you can do all that stuff. But if he doesn't have that one thing, he doesn't have you. He doesn't have you. You have to give him that one thing if you want to truly follow him. This is the bare minimum bar. But make no mistake, this is not works righteousness. This isn't saying, Jesus isn't saying, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and then, then you are a Christian. No, no, no. This is the necessary overflow of finding a greater treasure. This is the result that happens when you find something that is superior. You're saying, oh, I forget this. I don't need that. I have this. I have Christ. So you're not earning your salvation. You're, you are proving it by doing what naturally makes sense logically if you found a greater treasure. So it's not earning it. Now I want to highlight some sadness here. Two kinds of sadness. Verse 23, when this rich young ruler heard this, he became very sad. Why? Because he was very wealthy. He felt the weight of the cost. This reminds me of a story of the great missionary Amy Carmichael, if you know. She was ministering in India, and there was this Hindu queen. She was ministering to her in her palace, and the queen had a spiritual hunger. At least it seemed that way. And the queen asked her, Amy, what must I do to be saved? How can I inherit eternal life? So Amy started opening up the Bible and reading the Gospels, reading Jesus' words to her and his demands to her. And the more she read, the more her face fell. And the more she read, the more sorrowful the queen got. And eventually the queen said, so far must I follow? So far? And the queen said, I cannot follow so far. Like the rich young ruler, the queen counted the cost and realized Jesus was not worth it. And I actually think that's a blessed place to be because now you're in a place where you know that you're not fully given to him and you have a chance to follow him one day but the greater danger is the many hordes of Christians in churches who actually are not surrendered to him 
Jesus isn't the greatest treasure, but they don't know that he's not. That is a dreadful state to be in, to be that blind and ignorant. So this rich young ruler, we don't know whatever happened to him, but he's at least walking away with a clear sense of reality. I'm not right with this God, and that's a good place to be. And I'd rather you be in that place than think that you are and you're not and you're deceived. That is a dangerous place to be in. Now, I reminded you that in Mark chapter 10, it said that Jesus loved him, so he said these things. And I would also just say, share this with you briefly that when I was studying this in the Greek earlier, there is a variant from other Greek manuscripts that include that Jesus was then very sorrowful when he saw this man walk away. And I think that's probably in the original. And even if it's not, we see other times where Jesus is like this in other passages. But I share that to say this. Don't look at Jesus as nailing him and the man walking away sorrowful and the guy's like, and Jesus is just like, Psh pathetic, heathen. Jesus is sorrowful as this man walks away. Jesus has compassion for this man. Jesus loves this man even when this man is rejecting Jesus. Can you imagine that? This man is walking away and with his actions literally saying, Jesus, you're not worth it. And Jesus loves him still. What a God. But also notice that Jesus does not chase him. Jesus does not say, whoa, 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 come back, come back. Uh, what, have you, uh, what if we just eased our way into this? Just give us some of your substances. The rest, I get it, we got to ease you. What about just giving us some of this money? Or what about just some of your relationship? No, no, he's all or nothing. Jesus does not compromise, doesn't change his bar. He keeps it high. And when that guy's ready, by God's grace, by the Holy Spirit, maybe he'll come. And he can take it. He can receive it. But Jesus doesn't change his words, doesn't lower the bar. In church, may we not do the same. That doesn't mean we give up on people. That doesn't mean we don't keep investing in loving and caring for people and sharing the gospel and serving unbelievers. But what that does mean is that we cannot change the bar and give people a false sense of following Jesus and trusting Jesus and salvation when they're only just giving him crumbs. Yes, there is a process of maturity, and we have to meet people where they're at and, and carefully walk them into greater maturity, but we can't start from a foundation of saying you can just give them half of your heart. You can give them all but this. May it never be said that anyone preaching from this pulpit would lower the bar, because ultimately it's not about my bar, it's about Jesus' bar. Now, the following words are probably familiar to you, but it is so revolutionary and completely against all instincts and all culture. Verse 24, Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In this time, most assumed that the rich were those who were blessed and favored by God. And because they were healthy and wealthy, if you wanted to know who was favored and who would have a red carpet to heaven, you would often assume it was the people who were most blessed. But Jesus does a complete 360, or actually a 180, and flip everything on its head by saying it's actually hard for you to enter the kingdom of God if you're rich, which is pretty insane because who among us don't want to be wealthy? <laughs> who of us parents here don't want our kids to be successful and well-to-do? Oh, Jesus, I pray my kids would be poor one day. No, we don't pray those prayers. We hope good for them. 
And this passage is not encouraging us to hope ill for them or anything like that. But I just find it so interesting is that we're so unskeptical about wealth. We're so unsuspicious about it. We, we know that the dangers of wealth, and, and if you do polls, people often will poll and think that the richest in the country are the most, most selfish and the most, um, most uh, um, greedy. But we think, oh, but if I was wealthy, I wouldn't be that. Why do we give ourselves a pass? Why do we assume that wealth would affect everyone else but not us? And that Jesus' words to the wealthy are only just for those other guys and those other girls, not us. As if we just will be immune. No, Jesus emphatically, repeatedly warns Christians and throughout the uh, Gospels and the apostles follow his manner about the dangers of wealth and we Christians must heed it. And I am not going to do you a favor by sitting here and giving you all the qualifications about wealth because Jesus doesn't do that in this passage. If you want those, read the rest of your Bible. There are other qualifications about, the, uh, about wealth and the goodness of good gifts and all that stuff, and that's important. We'll preach on those when we get to those texts. But this text is just going at the hardness of having wealth. And we can so easily say, oh, yeah, yeah, not, not for me. I, I'll be okay. And if you feel that way, if you're that casual about it, I guarantee you it's already reckoning with you. It's already messing with you. It's crazy. I heard John Piper say one time, why would we want to make it more difficult for us to enter the kingdom of heaven? (laughs) But it's even harder than Jesus says at first, because verse 25, he says this, indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. (laughs) Imagine a camel being shoved through the eye of a needle. Now, in the 11th century, there was some people who wrote about this, this gate in Jerusalem that was called the, the Eye of the Needle. And they would preach, and it preached really well, that th- this gate was so short that if you wanted to enter the city, you would be riding a camel. The camel would actually have to get on its knees and kind of shimmy through to get in through the gate. So, guys, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to get on your knees. You've got to humble yourself. Man, that preached well. People loved that, and that spread out. But sadly, that's not true. <laughs> That, that was a myth, and it's been, it's been rebutted many, many times by faithful conservative scholars year after year. And you don't even need to know scholarship or read outside literature to even know that. Look at the context. How do the people respond to Jesus when he says this? Verse 26, those who heard this asked, who then could be saved? They're not like, oh, okay, so all we have to do is get on. No, they're like, what? Are you are you crazy? They understood the impossibility of a camel, which was probably for most Israelites, the biggest animal they've ever seen. They didn't have like zoos. Camels were humongous. If you've ever been to a camel, they're intimidatingly big and smelly and spitty, right? So they have this big animal in mind and they think about this really needle, little, small little needle and they're like, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. And Jesus affirms that interpretation because look at verse 27, he says this, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So Jesus doesn't even just say it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says it's impossible. And it's impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus makes it clear that salvation is only possible with God. Now, how does this happen? 
How does God do such a thing? How can any of us be saved if it's only possible with God? How does this happen? Well, this specific passage doesn't say everything, but I would take some of the points in this passage and then zoom out and look at other passages in the Bible, and this is what I would just quickly summarize for you. This is what I think happens. How can anyone be saved, let alone a rich man, especially the rich, but all of us too? And I would say a lot of us here are rich. Can I just, I forgot to say that, right? You got running water? You, you worried about food you're going to eat today? You got some money in your pocket? I mean, we're rich by and large, and we're a poorer church comparatively to America, but we're rich. You got multiple changes of clothes? You worried about where you're going to sleep tonight, if you're going to have enough warmth? No. And if, if that's you, if you're worried about any of those, please talk to us. We want to help you. Like, seriously. If you're like, man, this preacher doesn't get me. I'm, those are all me. Well, if that's you, please talk to me. Please talk to us. But for most of us, I know most of you, that's not you. You're rich. I'm rich. And one of the biggest lies the enemy will say to you is, you're not rich. That doesn't apply to you because you can always find another person richer than you. And you know what? You talk to that richer person, they're always going to find someone richer than them. And the loop goes on and on. We just pass the buck. Oh, oh, only for them, only for them. And then eventually, like, the only person rich is Elon Musk in the entire world, right? But all of us, we're not rich. We're all off the hook from these passages. Okay, anyway. How does this happen? How does God save us, anybody? Well, I think two things happen. God supernaturally opens the eyes of our hearts to realize what sinners we are and what a dreadful state we're in. That's step one. And then simultaneously, he opens up our eyes to see the beauty and the mercy of God, which results in us crying out to God for mercy, like the tax collector did in the last passage, beating our chest, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's what happens for a rich person or a poor person, poor person and everybody in between. That's the only way God can do the impossible. And praise God that he did that for me when I was 15. Praise God he did that for so many of you. So the giving up is not earning, but the natural, necessary result of truly seeing. That's what happens when you truly see. Now, Peter is often his pattern, hears this and interjects. Verse 28, Peter said, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. And I'll stop there. We'll get to verse 30 in a second. So Peter's like, hey, Jesus, hey, hey, Jesus, all that you asked that guy, we did. We did. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him. <laughs> he commends him in many ways. But notice the list of the things that Jesus says that he left. What does he include? Is there anything sinful on this list? houses, wife, brothers, parents, children? Aren't these all God, God-blessed, God-created good gifts, right? But he doesn't list all these bad, evil things that he has to leave, even though those are implied. He lists a bunch of good things that all of us enjoy, all of us would want. What is Jesus doing here? He's calling him to be willing his disciples to be willing to give up everything. Everything is on the table. It's not calling you to abandon your family necessarily or abandon where you're living and just aimlessly go somewhere following the Holy Spirit's voice. It may happen, and you may ought to do that. 
But Jesus is basically saying, every single thing, Sam Choi, every single thing, church, is on the table for me. Everything. And let, let me just remind you that this is, this is what the, Jesus says, says over and over here. Look at Luke 14, 33. Luke 14, 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is basic Christianity of following Jesus. Everything is on the, on the table for him. Everything. Even good things that are non-sinful. Does your understanding of Jesus include that he could ask you to give up everything? Everything, even your family. Because there's times where Jesus will be calling you in one direction and your family is calling you in another direction. And you have to pick Jesus. Jesus won't yield. Oh, well, well, well if your family's saying, then okay, I could change my agenda because I, you know, I don't know everything. Right? No. His way or no way. And there's going to be times where Jesus' callings and ways for your life will go contrary to your desire of where you live, who you marry, the neighborhood you're in, the job you have, your comforts. This is weighty and this is costly. And that's why one of the reasons why Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. This is not a pleasant thing. He doesn't say, take up, take up your, your lazy chair and follow me. It's an it's a excruciating, painful reality of following him sometimes. It's terribly hard. It's not easy. I'm not saying all of these things will happen. Jesus will call you, but in many microwaves it will happen, and indeed it may happen. Jesus may call you. I can't tell you how many times I meet godly parents keeping their, family, their kids back from the mission field. They're godly in so many ways. I respect them, and then their kid says, I want to follow Jesus and go into the mission field, and they're like, nope, nope, can't do that. And they're highlighting their safety, their future, their success over the mission. I've seen that over and over again. And in many different ways, I've seen Christians say, I will follow Jesus, I'll make disciples, but I won't move in that neighborhood because they are elevating their safety over the mission. I'll do anything, but I have to have this career. So elevating the career over Jesus. Like, on and on again, the examples are plentiful. And the many of them are in my own heart as well, of times where I've said, no, Jesus, don't go there. That's too much to ask, only these things. So this passage has been very, very hard for me because I never want to be a hypocrite when I preach God's word. I have to let it change me first. And so it's been uncomfortable as I've been asking if there are things I'm holding on. Now, these are very weighty words, but Jesus has a sweet promise in verse 30. Look at verse 30. Who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life? Listen, there is nothing that Jesus calls us to give up that he will not overwhelmingly, surpassingly give you way more. But what's alarming to me in this passage, he says in this life, too. Isn't that weird? Because you're like, but Jesus, you just called me to like live a sacrificial, how can that be? Well, I don't think it's necessarily material goods, though that may be part of it at times for some people in some places. But have you, saints, ever obeyed Jesus in a way that was so hard and so painful? It cost you so much. It was so hard to obey him, so painful. It took you so much courage. You were so afraid, but you did it. You obeyed. You stepped out in faith. You trusted him. And after you do this, though hard it may be, you are just filled with God's pleasure and favor. You just feel the joy of God on you and the pleasure of your father saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you for trusting me with this. Thank you. 
If you've never experienced that, that's, that's something you can't even begin to understand. And I hope that you can. But also, Jesus makes clear that in the new heavens and new earth, we will be rewarded many, many, many times over. So there's nothing that he asks you to give that he will not overwhelmingly repay. Now, I, I started this sermon with the question, how do you inherit eternal life? And if you zoom out of Luke and see the other passage we looked at in Luke 18, what does Jesus show us? He shows us with the tax collector and the Pharisee that you could only be saved if you aren't trying to save yourself. If you're not trying to point to your own works and compare yourself with others, but just know that you're a sinner in need of mercy. And only then will you be justified by God and counted righteous. And also with Jesus and the little children, he, he, he commends their manner and how they come helpless. Nothing that they can offer, but they can just sit on his lap. That kind of approach towards God where you have nothing to offer him and give him except your heart and you just go to him. And then in this passage, we see that to follow Jesus, the prerequisite is to be give, give him everything. Your one thing, give him that. So if you want to inherit eternal life, you need to know these things. You need to receive these things. And I want to close with this really important thing. Jesus is also a rich young ruler. Consider Jesus at the right hand of the Father, ruling the universe as the absolute sovereign, having all authority in heaven and on earth, having all the riches you could ever imagine, all the comforts, everything you could ever desire, he had and more that you can't even think of. And Jesus was not like the rich young ruler. Jesus laid down all that he had for us. Consider he left the comforts of heaven and everything that he had and lived on earth as a homeless, poor man, despised by his brothers, despised by his brethren, spit upon, mocked, misunderstood, lived a life sacrificially, caring for those that no one cared about. Listen, Jesus does not ask you of anything that he has not done himself or would do. This is the kind of Jesus we're following. We're not following a Jesus who's this harsh overlord that's just a harsh taskmaster who's just this fat, lazy guy sitting. Oh, clean that. Oh, you missed a spot. Yeah, you're not doing good enough. No, this is a one, a guy who gets on his knees and does it himself. He washes feet. He's not asking you of anything he won't do himself or indeed has done. Amen? This is the Jesus that we follow. This is the Jesus he trusts. And on the cross, he absorbed the wrath of God. He became powerless on the cross. He laid down his rights. He laid down his privileges. And on the cross, he was treated as if he was the greediest person who ever lived. He was treated as if he was a thief. He was treated as if he was nothing, even though he's everything. He gave up the comforts of the cross, even up to the point of giving up the comfort of his father's presence, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? did that so you and I wouldn't have to be forsaken. But church, if in visitors, if you want to follow Jesus, it's all or nothing. You have to give up your one thing. What is your one thing? What's that one thing keeping you away? Maybe it's the one thing that's keeping you away from getting, entering the kingdom of God, or if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a blood-bought brother or sister in Christ with me, maybe it's one thing that just has been hindering you lately, sneaking up, getting its grips on you, Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe it's something in your past. Maybe it's something that's just keeping you from all of the fullness of God. What is that one thing? Give Jesus that one thing today. He has warm, 
heart towards you. He has soft hands to hold you and to comfort you and to change you and strengthen you. These are arms that you can trust in. And just like the little children in our last passage, just going up to him and getting blessed and jumping into his lap, that's for you. Just give up that one thing. And if you're not a Christian, or maybe you realize you're not a Christian after you heard this passage, come talk with a believer. Tell them what's that one thing. Confess it, repent of it, lay it down, and we want to show you what it means to then follow Jesus. Because the goal is not giving up the one thing. The goal is following Jesus and knowing him. That's the goal we want. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being a worthy, loving Savior and a good Lord, good King. You do all that is right. Just and true are your ways. And though your demands upon us are weighty, you do not ask of us that which you have not paid yourself. That which you require, you provide. Thank you, Jesus, that you're not a harsh taskmaster. And Lord, I pray that if there's anything I said that was unclear, unbiblical, either in manner or in content, would you correct me, please? But if what I said is true and favored by you, let it deeply transform us. Show us the one thing that keeps us. What's that one thing holding us back from everything? We want to give it to you, Jesus, today. We surrender to you because you're good and you're worthy, and we want you. In Jesus' name.